Lord, as we give attention now to the understanding of these words read, remind us that we who are of little faith trust in you who is always faithful. And that is what faith is about. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, I want to pick up uh, where we left off last week with a story about Brian McLaren in his book, Faith After Doubt. He talks about the different stages of faith in his life and how doubt is what pushes him from one stage to the next. But when he had gotten to a point where he was ready to give up on faith because of the church, it was experiencing the church doing what he felt looked like the ministry of Jesus as Jesus would do it today that restored his faith. Well, in the book, after telling that story, he shares this quote from which I take the title of the message today. He says, I take the risk of saying something that sounds outrageous to some people, blasphemous and unpatriotic even, but it's necessary, I think. Only doubt can save the world. Only doubt will open a doorway out of hostile orthodoxies, whether religious, cultural, economic, or political. Only through the difficult passage of doubt can we emerge into a new stage of faith and a new regenerative way of life. Everything depends on making this passage. Only doubt can save the world. You know, we often think about the power of faith. We seldom talk about the power of doubt. And that's what I want us to think about this morning. The power of doubt. And who better to turn to than the patron saint of doubters? The disciple who comes to us by tradition, known by his nickname, Doubting Thomas. By that moniker, you would assume that this person is no paragon of faith, but that could not be further from the truth. So I want us to think about what we can learn about doubt from this story in Thomas's life. But before getting into Thomas, let me point out this story is a post-resurrection story. It happens after Easter morning. And it's interesting to note that in all of the Gospels, all of the Gospels tell the Easter story. They all include examples of doubt. Just look at the different Gospels and what they say in their Easter stories. Matthew. When the disciples saw Jesus, they worshiped him, but they doubted. (laughs) Isn't that a peculiar phrase? They worshiped, but doubted at the same time. Mark says, when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by Mary, they would not believe it. Luke, the story sounded like nonsense to the disciples, so they didn't believe it. If doubt is such a bad thing in the Bible, why is it so prevalent? Why do all of the accounts of the greatest miracle in the Bible, the resurrection of Jesus, include elements of doubt. Why would the Bible even include a phrase in the book of Jude that says, be merciful to those who doubt? Could it be that the Bible is not as concerned with doubt as it is something else? Could there be a bigger threat to faith than doubt? Now, while you chew on that for a few moments, let me introduce you to Thomas. 
Before the story we heard read a moment ago, there are three different uh, introductions to Thomas that each one gives us sort of a window into his personality. First time we hear from Thomas is when Jesus finds out his good friend Lazarus is deathly ill. And he says to the disciples, I'm going to go and see Lazarus, which happened to be near Jerusalem. The disciples think this is a terrible idea. They remind Jesus, it wasn't that long ago that they tried to stone you to death down there. But Jesus will not be dissuaded. So Thomas is the one who speaks up. He says, let us go that we may die with him. That sounds like a bit of male bravado, doesn't it? But I agree more with Ellsworth Callis, who says this was really a sarcastic resignation on Thomas's part. It was as if he were saying, hope is lost anyway, we might as well join dead Lazarus. So you could say Thomas was a bit of a pessimist. He anticipated the worst. Now the next time we hear from Thomas is at the Last Supper when Jesus told the disciples, I'm going to prepare a place for you and you know the way where I'm going. It was Thomas who spoke up. He said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Obviously Thomas was somebody who if he didn't understand something, he didn't worry about whether it was a dumb question. He's going to raise his hand and say, that makes no sense to me. What we see is somebody who likes certainty. He likes clarity. He likes to be certain. And then the last window into the personality of Thomas comes right before the story we heard read a moment ago. It was Easter evening, and the disciples were gathered in the upper room together, and Jesus appeared to them, but Thomas wasn't there. Now, why wasn't he there? Perhaps he was the kind of person who chose to grieve and work out hurts on his own in solitude. Perhaps that's another little piece to Thomas's personality. He would seek solitude, particularly in difficult times. So we understand that he was a bit of a pessimist. He liked certainty. And he was alone following the death of Jesus. I think it's fair to say that chances are Thomas's faith was not in the best place. So the disciples who have experienced now the risen Jesus come to their friend Thomas and told him, we have seen the Lord. Now, Raymond Brown, a New Testament scholar, says in his commentary on John that the verb here for told has a repetitious quality to it. They didn't just say it one time. It's like they were saying it over and over and over again. Thomas, we saw the Lord. No, really, we did. We saw him. We saw the Lord as if they're trying to convince him of something, trying to help their friend. But Thomas's response to them is, let me get on the right page here, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now think about that statement for a moment. Thomas wasn't just saying, I don't believe in God. 
he was saying to his fellow disciples, I don't believe you. I don't believe you. How would you have felt if you were one of the disciples? Would you have been offended? Would you have been resentful? I love this little thought about this story because I think it is such a helpful picture for the church. Because if they had been offended and were resentful that Thomas would say that to them, it does not mean that they quit including him because the next week when they were gathered together again, Thomas was with them. I love this thought that they did not give up on him even though he was beginning to give up on them they continued to give him space invite him in where he might have his own encounter I love this thought because I believe today people walk through the door every week every Sunday throughout the week jaded cynical hurtful and many times the anger toward God comes out at the people who represent God and there's a lot of hurt in our world. And people come in and react to things and they're hurt and the things that are really bugging their souls can come out over any kind of issue. And it's important to remember when we're getting heated reactions from people to just love and give space and welcome in spite of the treatment they give and know that that condition might not last forever. It did not with Thomas, because once again, the week after Easter, Jesus appeared to the disciples and went straight to Thomas. And look at what he says to them. Put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Okay, I'll give it to you. It does sound like Jesus is ridiculing doubt pretty firmly here, doesn't it? It does sound like Jesus is rebuking Thomas for his doubt. But once again, translations can sometimes be misleading. Raymond Brown says, if we were to translate the New Testament, which was written in Greek directly, here is what Jesus says. And do not become unbelieving but believing. Well, that's a different twist, isn't it? Don't become unbelieving. Jesus recognizes that that doubt, unbelief, is not a static condition. It's a progression. It, it moves. It can grow. We all need doubt in our faith to punch our doubt every now or punch our faith every now and then to keep it moving and stirred up but doubt unchecked can keep on growing and growing and growing and run away from us it's like jesus was saying to thomas get a rein on your doubt man get a hold of it so you don't let your doubt keep you from believing Doubt can run away from any of us. I mean, it, it might start with questioning a, a scripture passage, an interpretation, 
But it keeps growing and growing, and before long we think, well, if I'm going to question that, then I'm questioning the whole Bible. And it keeps growing, and we begin to say, well, maybe the Bible's just a book of fairy tales. And before long we're questioning the doctrines of the church, and even if the church does anything good after all. And before long we say, I don't even think I believe in God anymore. I have no faith. It can just keep growing and growing and growing. And it has to be reined in. Because doubt can turn us into skeptics. It can turn us into cynics. It can make us jaded. And that never leads to hope. There's a story from the days of the French Revolution. There were executions in the street rampantly. There were three men to be executed. The first one who stepped up to the guillotine was a priest. The executioner said to him, do you have any last words? He said, yes, I believe God will save me. He put his head in place. The blade came down and stopped inches above his neck. The executioner said, it's a miracle. And he let him go. The next man to come up, another priest. Do you have any last words? Yes, I believe God is going to save me. Put his head in place. Blade came down. Again, the same thing. Stopped inches above his neck. The execution, I've I've never seen anything like this. This is a miracle. He let him go. The third person came up was an atheist. Do you have any last words? Yes. I believe. I see your problem. Something's jamming your mechanism right here. (laughs) Thank you for laughing. I think that's a funny story too. It reminds us. Doubt can work against us. Doubt can turn on us. Doubt can rob us of the ability to believe in the miraculous, of the ability to hold on to the mysterious in life, of thinking that the world is, after all, only what we can see and touch and prove and know. That's what we have to have. And unchecked doubt can take it away. Sometimes, sometimes. We have to be able to doubt our doubts. So what was Thomas being invited to doubt? What kind of doubts was Jesus inviting Thomas? To doubt. Let me get at an answer for that by showing you a picture. This piece of artwork is known as the Incredulity of St. Thomas, painted in 1602 by the Italian artist Caravaggio. It imagines Thomas putting his finger in the wound of Jesus' side with other disciples there quizzically looking on. It's, it's vivid, it's intense, it's poignant, and it's terribly wrong. It's not biblical. The Gospel of John never says that Thomas touched Jesus. When Jesus said to him, come on, 
You said you're going to have to have evidence to believe. Well, then come up and put your hand here. Touch my wounds. But the very next thing it says is Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. It says nothing about his touching the wounds. And John would have us believe by that omission that he never did, that he didn't need to, that in the final analysis, what he said he would have to have, he decided that what he was experiencing in that moment was enough. I don't need any more. I'm letting go of that. What was he being asked to doubt? Certainty. He was being asked to let go of certainty, of faith that would depend on certainty. You may remember from two weeks ago when we started this series, we talked about how doubt challenges our faith to grow from one stage to the next. But often when we experience doubt, what it means is we're being asked to let go of something. Maybe there was something that helped our faith in one stage, but now we've got to let go of that to get to a newer place in our faith. And for Thomas, it's certainty. What we see in this story is that doubt is not the enemy of faith. Certainty is. Let me see if I can illustrate this for you. How many of you believe I have $50 in my pocket that you can hold for yourself? Do I have any believers? All right, right back there. I need you to come up. I need you to come up. <laughs> yep, yep, no, no, that, yep, come on up. Come on up, we've, we've got a taker here. We've got a believer. So you are being watched now by people as far away as Westfield. Introduce yourself if you would. Hi, I'm Ty. Ty, all right, Ty. You believe I have $50 in my pocket you can see and hold. Sure. In the next 15 seconds, I'm gonna destroy your faith. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right, look at this, $50. I have destroyed your faith because now you can see it, you can hold it. You don't need faith anymore, you have certainty. Now, uh, I wanna give you a chance to destroy my faith. <laughs> I believe you're gonna give me my $50 back. All right, thank you very much. What'd you thank Ty for coming up? I could have said, Pastor Rob, I don't want to destroy your faith and walked off with my $50, so I'm, I'm glad he didn't think that way. But you get the point. I know it's a silly illustration. I know that. It's a silly illustration. But it does make the point. Certainty is the enemy of faith. Because once you have certainty, you don't need faith anymore. You have what you need. You have the evidence And faith depends on trust. Certainty leads to being right. It depends on knowing, it depends on evidence, but it usually becomes the need to be right. 
Certainty is not just an enemy of faith. It can be a destroyer of faith. When a person's faith gets bound up in certainty that they know beyond a shadow of a doubt what they believe and it's right and it's correct and everybody must think that way. I served a church one time who had a very devout woman in the church who was big on absolutes. She was big on having absolutes in faith, truths that were absolute. You do not question them. They cannot be questioned. You believe it no matter what. And it made her a very popular teacher. It made her a popular individual. Folks would seek out for counsel because she would tell people clearly what you must believe, what you have to think, what is right, what is absolute and true. When her husband left her, I went to visit her to see how she was doing. Her confusion, her hurt, maybe her questions with God came out at me because I had not been preaching enough absolutes. The Bible is clear. God hates divorce. And if I had preached that more, her husband would still be with her. In fact, she wanted me to still go and preach and give him one last chance at conversion. <laughs> Let him know what the Bible says so he'll come back to his wife. I said, do you really want a husband who comes out of fear and religious obligation? Or do you want a husband who comes because he loves you? She said, I believe one will lead to the other. It might. It could. But I do believe this. Which one you choose first changes significantly the way you live. When being right is important, when being certain is important, that often directs how you live and how you treat people. But when you love, when you trust, that directs life differently. John Ortberg, in his book, Faith and Doubt, talks about this topic when he references a verse from Hebrews, which says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. What an intimidating statement, isn't it? How do we know that our faith is ever strong enough to please God. But Orberg says about this, without faith, it's impossible to please anybody. Try making a friend without having faith. Try getting married without having faith. Try raising a child without having to learn about trust. He says, if someone ever ask him the question, do you believe your wife is faithful? He would say, of course. And if they said, well, how do you know? He would say, because I know my wife. And if they continued and said, but wouldn't you really like to know with all certainty? Imagine your wife could be put under 24-hour surveillance, a camera that watches her every move, 
Wouldn't you like then to know? I mean, wouldn't you like that? And he says, never. Never. Because there's something better than certainty. And that is faith. Because faith requires trust. And when you trust somebody, you're giving them a gift. Maybe that's why the Bible calls faith a gift. God gives it to us. We don't manufacture faith on our own. God gives within all of us a yearning for something more than this life. And when we put faith in God and when we put faith in each other, we're giving one another a gift, a trust, a belief, because that is what makes life worth living. That is what makes life beautiful. Thomas makes the greatest confession of faith in the Bible, my Lord and my God. And so Jesus says to Thomas in response, words that sound like Jesus is talking to everyone gathered there, words that sound like he's talking to us today. Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe Jesus is not saying it's wrong to seek in our faith, to try to ground our evidence in faith and what we ultimately believe. Jesus is not saying it's wrong to doubt. What he's saying is don't let your seeking become a demand for certainty. Don't let your faith become certainty because certainty erodes trust. Let your faith be something that has room for doubt, but not a doubt that leads you to become a cynic. Doubt that is willing to keep trusting. Because in the end, that is the most powerful thing in this world. A faith that persists in trusting even without the evidence in hand is a faith that changes life and changes the world. After World War II, in Cologne, Germany, there was a, a home or perhaps a building that it was believed to be a, a place where Jewish fugitives escaped the Holocaust and, and waited out the war deep down in a, in a cellar. There would be different messages people would write on the walls, maybe for folks who would find those words later if they, if they did not survive the war. One of these writings was a poem that was discovered. These are the words to it. I believe in the sun, even when it's not shining. And I believe in love, even when there's no one there. 
And I believe in God even when he is silent. I believe through any trial there's always a way, but sometimes in this suffering and hopeless despair, my heart cries for shelter to know someone's there. But a voice rises within me saying, hold on my child, I'll give you strength. I'll give you hope. Just stay a little while. And then it goes back to that refrain, I believe in the sun. And then closes with these words. May there someday be sunshine. May there someday be happiness. May there someday be love. May there someday be peace. United Methodist worship pastor and teacher Mark Miller was on a tour in Europe when he learned about this story and these words. And he came back and he put it into music as others have done in other places. We're going to close our service hearing this first song and then we'll join together with the choir in singing. Let us stand. <laughs> 